name's Bond. James Bond. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Bond vs. Godzilla, the only podcast on the internet, as far as I know, that compares and contrasts two of the longest-running film series in cinema history. My name is Cruz Moore, and I will be your resident Godzilla expert on this show. Joining me on this cinematic journey for however long it lasts are three of my very good friends who each have their own history and experience with both film franchises. So Jake, please tell the audience who you are and why you're here. I'm Jacob Roberts. I am a professional nerd and lifelong James Bond fan. I got into the James Bond series from a very young age. Uh, I have seen every movie more times than I could possibly count. So I think I probably know a thing or two about James Bond. All right, and that's exactly why I'm glad to have you here. So, Willie, you're familiar with the Bond series because you've already marathoned it with Jake, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience? The first time I, I marathoned it, it was me and him. We watched a few of them. We, we jumped around. I think our first one we started with was Goldeneye, mm-hmm. uh, just because it's like the iconic one in a way, one of. And that was that was my first, first introduction into it. And then we, we jumped around... We watched all of the Conneries together, all of the storyline that surrounds Spectre. Then we showed Dante them all in chronological order. So, I, And I was there for, for that as well. So you've seen the Bond series twice over. How many Godzilla films have you seen? I've, I've seen three. Yes. At least three. Because, because there were, there <laughs> all was... three of which I have shown you. So, yeah. Yeah. I have, as far as Godzilla is concerned... Up until now, I have not seen a single Godzilla film, so I'm going into that. Excellent. Blind and fresh. So, Chaz, what's your experience with both Bond and Godzilla series? I'm Charles. I'm an aspiring artist. My friends call me Chaz. It's because that's what your name is. It's Chaz. Stop lying. You know. Stop lying. (laughs) Well, I have a secret family with secret friends. Okay, it's just secret friends. It's the Asian Yakuza. I already know that. Anyway, so I'm an aspiring artist, and over basically my exposure has been mostly light for uh, both franchises. Although I've seen some Bond films, and I've I've only seen the Godzilla films basically through Cruise here, and uh, my other exposure to Godzilla has been through uh, J- uh, James Rolfe's uh, Cinemassacre or other series. Yeah, his entire Godzilla thon on YouTube. Yeah, which uh, which was always a great watch when I was growing up, and was a. Uh, Kind of a nice introduction into this world that I didn't really know how to get into at the time. And then your experience with Bond has been what? Uh, mostly pretty light. Uh, seeing films every now and then. I'm you know growing up under a, kind of a more conservative household. I, I did see some of the films every now and then, but and uh, it was uh, it was kind of one of the it was kind of almost one of the cultural staples that wasn't like constantly like played about, but it was one of the ones that the family was always comfortable acknowledging. Hmm. Okay, and then coming back to me, my experience with the Bond series is I have only seen the brand new Daniel Craig era. Uh, That started when me and my friends, we just picked a film that was the most popular at the time. The entire theater was just filled with people, which was a surprise to me that, you know, this new Casino Royale was so popular. And we had to sit in the very, very front row. But despite it being that crowded and that up close to the screen, I had one of the best viewing experiences of my life watching it like that with friends. And ever since then, I just felt like, yeah, these are fun films to watch in the theater. But I haven't seen any of the other Bond films, so I'm really excited to go through the rest of the history and see how it compares to the new iteration. And then when it comes to Godzilla, 
Um, not only is it one of my favorite film series of all time, but it was essentially the godfather to me being introduced to film itself. The original Godzilla and Godzilla 1985 were some of the first films I ever saw, and they were also my introduction to the concept of other countries, cultures, just seeing the world in a whole new light in general when you're three years old. So it's a series that's very near and dear to my heart and has lasted with me throughout my entire life. And any attempt to indoctrinate more people I know into seeing the a wide variety of films that are in the series, I try to do as much as possible. Which leads us to the premise of our show. Beginning in 1962, the James Bond series has remained one of the longest serialized movie series in film history, spanning 25 films, kickstarting the secret agent movie genre, and is a staple of British and American culture. Parallel to this, the Godzilla film series, which began in 1954, also holds the honor of being one of the longest movie series in film history, with 32 movies kickstarting the kaiju film genre and is a proud staple of Japanese culture. Both series have changed over time, utilizing different writers, actors, and directors, and reflected an evolution of culture, filmmaking, and talent. It is our goal to journey through each installment and discuss them at length to provide insight into their quality, their place in the series' history, and whether we find parallels between the films as they continue to evolve. For those of you who are paying attention, you may be asking, how do you plan on double billing both these series if there are seven more Godzilla movies than there are Bond movies? Well, Jake and I will gladly explain how. In regards to the Godzilla series, we will be watching all 29 Japanese live-action Toho-produced movies, starting with Gojira from 1954 and ending with Shin Godzilla from 2016. We will not be watching Godzilla from 1998, Godzilla from 2014, or Godzilla King of the Monsters from 2019. We will also not be watching the Godzilla anime trilogy. Even though that is Toho produced, and I do consider it to be a part of the official series, for the sake of matching both series with 29 movies, we will solely be focusing on the live-action Godzilla films. So Jake, please tell us how exactly we'll be pairing the Longevous Bond series with Japan's favorite icon. Well, like I said, there are 25 Bond films in this series to consider, which is where things get a little interesting. In order for all 29 movies to match up, we'll be starting with Dr. No from 1962 and ending with the latest film, No Time to Die, whenever the heck it decides to come out. We'll also be watching the parody version of Casino Royale from 1967, the readapted Never Say Never Again from 1983, and we'll also be adding both Kingsman films to the roster, making for a total of 29 movies. Also, we are not held accountable for any sequels that may or may not come out in the future, if we even get that far. I, I know that uh, Kingsman, the Kingsman is... is There's is a third it... movie coming out. Exactly. We're not held accountable for any sequels. We're not held accountable. I mean, that one's already been announced. We are not held accountable. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thus ending the problem once and for all. Not liable. Once and for all. <laughs> The overall issue is that, like I said, we have over 29 films to go through, yeah. and we can't be held accountable for scheduling, uh, death, um, right. change of life, death, not being Special friends with death. Chaz anymore, Extra death. Cake or death. Death, please. I mean, I, like, I, I, I'm really interested to see where is some of your guys' views and and your yours and my views about some of the Bond movies will 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 will, will differ. Hmm. Because there are some that are good, but painfully slow. Hmm. And then there are some that are just like, 
a complete different path that that took the original uh bond fan base when they came out in theaters by storm and like shocked them and made and some of them didn't like it like like you know what I'm talking yeah, about yeah no what's 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 interesting about James Bond as a film series is that due to the wide variety and just total number of films that there are every single film has its lovers and its haters which is very much the same with Godzilla as yeah, well n- no exception every film no matter what my opinions are, no matter what your opinions are on it, you're gonna, it's going to be someone's favorite Bond film. Like the, the Godzilla film that most fans consider to be the worst, which is Godzilla's Revenge, I actually think is hilarious and fun to watch because of how bad it is. So there, it's an interesting contrast. There is one Bond movie that I have that same exact relationship with it that, you know, I view that this film has problems. However, I still enjoy it immensely because it is a, just a guilty pleasure fun ride. Should we know which one it is? Uh, it's 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 one of the Brosnans. Oh, okay. That's, that's what I thought. As of right now, the worst Bond film I've ever seen is Quantum of Solace. So. Uh, you did agree with that. Okay. <laughs> if we get to In Quantum of Solace. In the future. Yeah. If we get to Quantum of Solace, we'll deal with Quantum of Solace. But In even that film has future. its fans. Yeah, yeah surprisingly. And, and, and that's because they can look past... Everything? Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> like, the plot itself. They can look past the white solid. stripes. Yeah, it's oh, fine. I, I promised myself not to come on here and uh, completely rag on Quantum of Solace, but still, <laughs> he still finds his way in somehow. Yeah. Also, I have some very bad news, guys. What's that? I thought we were the first Bond versus Godzilla podcast on the internet. Turns out I was wrong. There is, in fact, another Bond and Godzilla discussion podcast. So, unfortunately... We are not the first of our kind, but we can exist in the same outlet, whatever, either way. Yeah. I want to link to this. I want to see what they did. <laughs> Their logo's on a swank as ours is going to be, though. Well, that's all up to you, Chaz. I know. Don't disappoint me. <laughs> I have a good idea for it, or though. you won't eat tonight. <laughs> or tomorrow. Dr. No, the first film in the franchise, is actually based off the sixth of Ian Fleming's novels, originally published in 1958. The film rights originally launched in the lapse of Eon Productions, which continues to produce the Bond franchise to today. The film was overseen by executive producers Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli. It stars Sean Connery stepping into the role of James Bond for the first time, as well as Ursula Andress as Honey Ryder and Joseph Wiseman as a titular Dr. No, a mad scientist bent on world domination. It was directed by Terence Young, with the screenplay by Richard Maybaum. The opening title sequence, the first of many by Morris Binder, is accompanied by the now-iconic James Bond theme written by Monty Norman and arranged by John Barry. The movie on most acca- is on most accounts fairly loyal to the source material, changed in areas to better fit the fact that the movie takes place a decade after the novel was written. James Bond is sent to the island of Jamaica, which at the time was still considered a British colony, having only declared independence a mere two months before the film's release. Bond is tasked with finding an MI6 geologist that has mysteriously gone missing. The Bond franchise is often credited as of having invented the action genre of films. While I don't entirely agree with this, it is true that when most people think of James Bond, they imagine impossible stunts and heart-throbbing action. 
It's for this reason that many first-time viewers are surprised at how tame the first entry of the series is. With only a budget of a million dollars, Dr. No travels at a steady, almost meandering pace that plays out more like a detective's murder mystery for most of the runtime. James Bond's world is one of intrigue, where lies and betrayal wait around every corner. It is for this reason that Dr. No, more so than most later films, is able to highlight James Bond as a cold and sometimes cruel instrument of the British government. I think the one thing that stands out the most is how you said people consider it to be very tame. Because I immediately thought like, wow, this is like the most humble Bond film I've seen compared to all the Daniel Craig films I've seen. <laughs> very humble beginnings for sure. Because the number one thing I was thinking of, it's like James Bond, explosions, women, violence, solitaire. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it's very humble, like considering like James Bond still has like an incredibly baller introduction. Like he's at like an expensive poker table where they have these huge like plastic chips and just like, I don't smoke, I don't gamble. But, but man, does Sean Connery make me want to smoke and gamble. Yeah, it makes it into, like, even though I'm not into those things, like, yeah, that, that would work in my yeah, power no, fantasy. See, Hell yeah. You can easily see how that original introduction to the character became one of the most iconic moments in film history. Yeah. Like, that, just him saying that name for the first time is filled with so much gravitas. Plus he, plus he tips fucking fat. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he, he tipped a big old fat, uh, big old fat shit. It's like, man, me. I feel like an asshole if I don't do 15%, and yet this guy's fucking, oh, yeah, there you tips go. Tips the dealer, tips the doorman. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't need it. Tips, tips the director. Tips his boss. Tips himself. That would be some of the things that I think make uh, Dr. No so effective is how well the movie builds tension. Uh, it's especially surrounding uh, uh, the villain Dr. No himself, who only shows up in like the last fifth of the movie. Yeah. But everything leading up to him, you see his henchmen, you see the fear that they have in him, the control that he has, even having an agent stationed within uh, the, the Kingston government. So you, you really start to feel like, this guy is a threat. This guy means business. And you hear that off-screen voice. Yeah, this voice of God that he has. set by, um, by Ken Adams, the set designer. Major mm -hmm. shout out to him. All of his sets are absolutely amazing. So he stuck through the series throughout that time? He, he stuck through, through, through the series for a long time. Yeah, mm -hmm. you're going to see That's more good. examples of his set design as uh, the films go on. And every time he just knocks it out of the park. Every all of everything that you think of when you think you know the stereotypical James Bond villain lair, all of that was invented by Ken Adams. That is a style that he invented and now has become, you know, part of the cultural zeitgeist. So he was a man that envisioned: what if there was just one spider in a cage in the middle of a room, and a voice <laughs> saying, "Pick it up." Yeah, <laughs> that, that that that's what I. Uh, continuing off of his building up Dr. No, you hear him before you see him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I'm, I just kind of like connected that in my head just now. Like, obviously I know that. Obviously I've seen the movie three times now, so right. it's something that I, that I know happens. But there's a difference between watching it and like seeing it happen and then like realizing it later as someone's talking about how good tension is built up. And then you realize... Oh wow, yeah. They actually, you actually just hear him before you see him during all that. And that's when you realize that the voice actually came from the spider. Oh fuck! Because <laughs> I firmly believe that the real villain of this movie is the spider. 
sent by the Clint, spider queen. Why would they kill him off halfway through? Exactly. You guys, you guys really enjoyed the spider scene. And yeah, yeah. I, I definitely did the spider scene. It, it just straddles enough on the ridiculous that it's awesome mm-hmm. having that you know the, the the band play out with every strike of the shoe yeah. <laughs> it, it helps that sean connery actually acted like he just saw a freaking spider sean connery was actually quite terrified of the spider <laughs> and um th- this Spiders. isn't the first time that they would bring an animal on set that sean connery wanted nothing to do with but he had no choice um but we'll get to those <laughs> so when it was crawling up his arm that was actually his reaction well it wasn't on his arm yeah it's the thing. No, you, it, it kind of did crawl up his arm like from being on the blanket if you watch that scene you can quite uh clearly see if you pay really close attention that there is a pane of glass between the spider and Sean Connery, you can actually see yeah. moments where his arm presses up and flattens against oh, wow. the glass. Yeah. If you pay attention, there's glass between this. So <laughs> the, he, he refused to have the spider touch him, even though it was a staged tarantula and thus 100% harmless. Yeah. I did notice that when it, when it pent to him staring at the spider crawling on him, that that didn't look like acting. No, he was, he was, he was quite afraid of it. He, I think he might have even uh, tried to get... Um, uh, Bob Simmons, the, um, the 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 main stunt man, to do it instead, but um, uh, Terrence Young insisted <laughs> that you know we need the close up of your face. That's funny. You, you may not believe it, but I'm fucking terrified of spiders. Get this fucking thing away from me. It has eight legs. Why do you need eight legs? I only have two. <laughs> Dear God, Sean, that was a prop spider. They're trained, and that costs money. Well, fuck it. Does it look like I give a damn? Hand me the flamethrower. <laughs> <laughs> Sean wants the flamethrower. Sean wants the what? I mean, Jesus Christ, they look even worse when they're dead. Their legs crawl up into a ball. Can you imagine if humans crawled up into a ball when we died? <laughs> Can you imagine that? Spe- um, speaking of, of Terrence Young, he also deserves mention because... All of the image that we have of James Bond as the suave, sophisticated secret agent. Who's afraid of spiders. Yes. <laughs> that all comes from Terrence Young. Terrence Young was the real life, super suave, machismo uh, James Bond figure. And he he taught Sean Connery everything he knew. He taught Sean Connery how to be suave. Because if you compare the movies to the books, Bond isn't like that. In the books, he's not suave and sophisticated. He's boorish and a blunt instrument, kind of closer to what uh, Daniel Craig would ultimately portray. And the idea of him, you know, being this uh, cool guy picking up all the chicks at the poker table, wearing only the finest suits—that that all came from the director Terrence Young, who wanted to instill that suaveness into it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's kind of ironic when it comes to the martini. We all know. You know, vodka martini, shaken, not stirred. Because of the James Bond franchise, we all think of, oh, that's how you have a martini. That's a sophisticated <laughs> way to have a martini, is shaken, not stirred. That's how Bond drinks it. So that's that's the sophisticated way. In reality, it's the opposite. For a, a more, mar, you know, martini snobs, they'll tell you that the best way to prepare the martini is to stir it. That way you don't uh, bruise the alcohol, especially if you're making it with gin. Ian Fleming had Bond order his martinis shaken, not stirred in the books as a way to show that he isn't sophisticated, that he is uh, just a boorish, blunt instrument of the government. But when they kept shaken, not stirred in with the movies, 
that changed the entire global uh, perception. And finally, I'm not sure if you guys uh, noticed or not, but uh, in Dr. No, Bond never ordered a vodka martini shaken, not stirred. One was just prepared for him. Huh. Yeah, they were but, just having but, him yeah, for, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's the one scene where he walks into the hotel room yeah. and uh, the, the, hotel, uh, the hotel staff gives him the drink and says, mixed like you said, sir, and not stirred. And then later by Dr. No, Dr. No hands him the drink saying, uh, uh, shaken, not stirred. Because Dr. No is his biggest yeah. fan. <laughs> shaken, not stirred. Notice me, senpai. <laughs> I was going to say, do you like it, senpai? <laughs> So apart from spiders, let's talk about the other animal that was supposed to be on set but wasn't, and I really (laughs) wish they were. Okay, so at the end of the film, um, after Dr. No has been eliminated, uh, Bond has uh, overheated the uh, nuclear reactor, the entire island is exploding, Uh, he needs to escape, but first he needs to find Honey Ryder, who's been captured. Uh, In the film, you see that when he does find... uh, Honey, she is chained to this uh, slab near where a bunch of seawater is rushing into uh, the room, and it looks like that she is. Uh, the idea is that she's going to be sat there and drowned. The original script called for having uh, Honey be surrounded by a swarm of <laughs> crabs. They ordered the they ordered the crabs. Uh, the crabs came in. And uh, you know th- this this uh, this particular scene was not filmed on location in Jamaica. It was filmed in uh, Pinewood Studios uh, back in England. When the crabs <laughs> arrived, they arrived frozen and half dead. And you can find um, uh, photo stills of the scene with uh, Ursula Andress surrounded by the crabs. Um, they were lifeless. They just would not move. And uh, uh, Terrence Young decided that they're just not threatening enough and they were asking for extra money it was just complete douchebaggery (laughs) (laughs) damn socialist crabs so making our they had to lobby for more money so basically basically universal crab income (laughs) (laughs) they were very shellfish Uh, (laughs) so last minute they changed it Last minute, they changed it to remove the crabs, um, have her have the uh, water be rushing in and make it look like that she's uh, uh, planned to be drowned. Mm-hmm. So that's why that scene looks so awkward because the crabs were dead. Uh, this is a good way to, to merge into Honey Rider who have, you know, controversial opinion, especially for a Bond fan. I don't like the character of Honey Rider. I get it, the, uh, the scene of her stepping out of the water, singing with that white belted bikini. Yeah. It's iconic. I get that. She is useless as a character. She's um, there. Yeah, you yeah. can remove her from the script, and the absolutely only thing that would change is Bond would escape the island three minutes sooner. Just that walk is- into an empty room full of crabs. She was absolutely <laughs> unnecessary as a character. One of the character traits that they tried to instill into the character of Honey Rider was that she is an animal expert. She knows all these random facts about animals. Hmm. And so they were going to have these crabs. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> trying to be the I one. Get it. <laughs> I mean, like the the only thing I like about Honey Rider is a scene where she describes how she uh, killed a sexual assaulter with a black widow spider. I yeah, like that's that. Really that was yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the only that 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 was a cool moment. That was a cool little scene, and I'll give her that. But aside from that, not not much. Uh, I really don't care for the character. They really didn't give her too many opportunities to play up the whole animal expert thing. No, because they, they they wrote her in at the uh, towards the end of the film just because they needed a girl, they needed a sexy girl. 
Bond, save me. The arms on these king crabs have the strength to crush a tank in two. I know this because I'm an animal expert. Uh, in terms of favorite kill in the movie, you know, like I said, humble beginnings with Dr. No. So there is, so we're not yet at the point to where we are killing off all the bad guys in absolutely ridiculous, ludicrous ways. Mm-hmm. But there are a couple of kills, uh, the most iconic of which is when he kills Professor Dent when he, uh, when he comes in to try to kill Bond after the, uh, with Miss Taro. There are cuts of the film um, in which, you know, you see him, you know, he gives a little quip of, uh, that's a Smith & Wesson and you've had your six. And yeah. then he shoots Dent. And then he shoots Dent again in the back to finish him off. There are cuts of the film in which that second shot was removed because it was thought that... That was a bit too violent. It was mm. added in and in, in, uh, added back in in later cuts. The whole point of that scene in general was to showcase that Bond is ruthless. For me, my my favorite kill of the film is just this so-called dragon that they've emphasized the and dragon. hyped up the whole time. <laughs> and it's like, look, there it is. Quick, shoot it. And the dragon truck tank flamethrower thing is like be right there be right there the guys in the tanks had machine guns so it's like projectile from far away flamethrower that you have to be pretty damn close that has the same energy of uh the commander in the tank telling his soldiers uh drive closer i want to hit them with my sword well i want to hit them with my flamethrower sounds a lot better honestly (laughs) in a modern perspective has a a slightly bigger range than sword. it'll be so cool guys we've just been burning grass all day Coral doesn't even put up a fight once he gets set on fire. He's just like, oh, no, well, no, I'm no. dead now. Coral <laughs> gets hit with the fire and he's just dead. Well, I guess I'll die. <laughs> what kind of death is that? Um, The instant kind? My uh, Probably my favorite, uh, or uh, maybe not my favorite, I don't know, but uh, relevant to our previous conversation, Dr. No essentially gets boiled alive oh, like yeah. a crab. And drowns. Yeah, was that was that mostly because his hands were just so heavy? Yeah, that's the yeah. idea. Because he had metal hands. Okay. And so he couldn't <laughs> grip. He couldn't get. A, he couldn't get a good grip. Oh, uh, there's no way I could have prevented this. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so because of his metal hands, he couldn't climb back up, and so he was trapped there in the in the reactor and got boiled alive. He could crush a Buddha statue, but a ladder makes him look like a bitch. <laughs> look in the I book, uh, Doctor No gets killed off by uh, being buried alive in bat guano. So there's that. That's pretty awesome. In what? In the book, in bat guano. How does does he how does he get buried in it though? I have to read the book again to remember the um, the exact details. Because does he like trip and drown in a pool of it or like? No, it gets it gets dropped on top of him. Oh, okay. Yeah. I must eat my way through all this backwater to save my life. Unfortunately, my hands can't shove enough into my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't I make my hands shovels? Lovely image. Also, I love the concept of. They have this very ornate system to get rid of radiation from your body, but as soon as they're done with it, here's a cancer stick. C- c- cigarette will take longer to kill you than radiation. Yeah. And, it, and it's less likely to kill other people. And it's less likely to take your hair out as quickly. Little well, did they know that they were radioactive cigarettes. Uh, too late for Sean Connery. He was already wearing a wig. Uh, oh, really? Was he wearing a wig in that? Oh, yeah. oh okay. That really? Well. Oh, That's, yeah. Huh. See, I notice his accent trying to break through his acting. I didn't notice the wig, though. You'll you'll notice that going forward, they'll stop the pretense of the Scottish accent. They'll yeah. just let him be Scottish. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, <laughs> like, oh, Ian Fleming it. originally was against Sean Connery. He hmm. didn't like Sean Connery. He thought he was a horrible choice. 
Um, the, they originally they tried to get um, amongst the people that they originally tried to get. Uh, they tried to get Roger Moore, mm-hmm. but he was unavailable. Um, well, he eventually becomes yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then um, and then uh, Sean comes in. Ian Fleming hated him until the movies actually started to uh, uh, make do money. Well. <laughs> Ian Fleming uh, warmed up to the idea, and in honor of Sean Connery, gave James Bond Scottish heritage in the official books. Mm. So, also, I like the fact that as soon as we see Bond, we hear like the iconic theme as he's sitting at the table. Oh yeah, no, um, and yet throughout the. <laughs> Throughout the entire film, we just hear it over and over again whenever that was, he appears. That was very much a uh, strong decision by, um, I believe it was a um, uh, a joint decision by Terrence Young and the uh, producers, uh, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, mm. uh, that they wanted that theme song played as often <laughs> as possible. Bond just walking across the screen, play the theme song. Bond gets out of his car, play the theme song. And if you're not playing a the theme song, uh, you're doing something wrong. No, if you're not playing a the theme song, uh, play yeah. underneath the mango tree. Yeah, yeah, that, that. <laughs> I just like to imagine that whenever Sean Connery's walking, there's just a guy with a guitar behind him, just going. <laughs> <laughs> just like some Ray Charles-looking band, just like strolling behind him with caster wheels on their instruments. Uh, James, I would love to have sex with you, but does the band have to be? <laughs> They're being paid by the hour. Of course they do. All right, we got take one on League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. God damn it, Sean. <laughs> it's my curse. Also, Chaz, I love how you pointed out where it's like uh, Bond, gets his, <laughs> Bond gets his signature martini. And then, oh crap, what's her name? Honey... Honey Rider? Honey Rider, yeah. yeah. Bond gets a signature martini, and, and for Honey Rider, just a fat glass of wine. <laughs> that's true, that's true. Just a big old glass of red wine. Give the lady what the lady's like. <laughs> Gunk! <laughs> uh, in, the, in that same scene, I, uh, I did notice you guys kind of give a look to each other when um, Bond is um, following Dr. No up on yeah, to, uh, yeah. to the dinner, and he takes a few moments to like center in on that painting. Yeah. Let me explain. I'll explain why that pa- that painting is a painting of the Duke of Wellington by Goya. And at the time, the Bean Company. God damn it! I was going to say that. <laughs> at the time, that uh, the, the the painting was stolen and was missing. And so the implication was that Doctor No stole the painting. Oh, okay. So that that that's what that was a nod towards. So all for like all the art snobs in the audience, they're like, ooh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, that, that, that's a bit of a dated reference. A huge tell was that there was no fingerprints found at the scene of the crime. So it's like, <laughs> Bond, if you could please join me for dinner. Uh, Amelia Earhart's here, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so fast forwarding to the climax, I I love the fact that. I I'm going in expecting some climactic battle between these this hero and this villain and this evil plan that he has. Very short. Yeah, but it's it's literally Bond in a suit, just pink panthering his way to this console <laughs> and then going, I don't know what I'm doing, so I'm just gonna fuck with this and save the day. This hopefully looks like it'll break it. Hopefully turning this wheel to the max is the right thing to do. I like how they like they don't like they're not even able to actually meet Dr. No until they get completely decontaminated. Kind of almost uh giving Dr. No like an extra level of uh, like being illustrious. And showing more of his organization. I don't want to be near them. They were in the swamp. They were all freaking dirty and radioactive, but dirty. (laughs) They were touching seashells. 
Those are those are only worth fifty dollars. This, this, this is worth fifty dollars in Miami. Fifty. <laughs> And, and that's a lot for back then. That's a lot for back then. What, what year it's like, was it oh, $50, it doesn't matter. And then, oh, crap, what's her name? Honey? Honey Ryder. Honeycomb. Honeycomb's all like, oh, but but listen. Can you hear it? <laughs> oh, my God, Mrs. Honeydew. This is incredible. You can't hear the ocean. Oh, my God, Mrs. Honeypot. That's incredible. All the women in the film, <laughs> with the exception of um, Miss Moneypenny and a photographer were all overdubbed by the same actress, Nikki Vanderzil. Really? Yeah. Is there a reason for that? Overdub- overdubbing back then um, was a much was a much more common practice, especially for characters like um, uh, Ursula Andres ha- uh, natively has a very thick accent. If you actually listen to her talk, she has a very thick accent. And um, so did the photographer, who was actually, interesting enough, the actress who played the photographer, I believe she was the crowning uh, Miss Jamaica. Yeah, she also had a very thick accent. But yeah, all three of them. Um, uh, Nikki Vanderzil, who will go on to continue the trend of dubbing most female characters in the early films. But I do, I do appreciate um, the film for, and James Bond isn't always this delicate, truth be told. But I'm glad that they didn't portray uh, the native uh, Jamaican and Cayman Islanders in, in too negative a light. Granted, there weren't that many of them. It was mostly white people, which was fair for the time, because like I said, Jamaica was a British colony at the time. And so, ba- so, Brit- so um, at, least, at least a few uh, native Cayman Islanders that they did have in the film, they were all good, enjoyable characters. Like, you didn't really expect it to be generous towards the characters, but like, it, it felt like they could have done more for them, but like, they didn't, they didn't go out of their way to like, give them extra character, but they did enough. No, I mean, I mean, you, you can at least see that, you know, Bond respected Quarrel mm-hmm. and trusted him, and, and Quarrel was, you know, more than happy and willing to aid James Bond in his mission. And it felt like a bigger help than like Honeymelon did, because it's like, <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he no. seems to actually know what he's doing, and she's, there. I, I also found it funny that the CIA guy was like, uh, like apparently trying to blend in while wearing like winged glasses, like uh, the I forgot what they're called, but like the but that wing tipped glasses. No, they they're they're they're, they're like they're like aviators, but like the area around the arms is like extra emphasized. I don't I don't know the proper name of the sunglasses, but yeah, he's he's always wearing the sunglasses. Like I think it, it's like more of a look that's more associated with like women's sunglasses. The thing is, like they were really trying to go for that island feel, especially since you know Felix Leiter in this film was played by Jack Lord, who is most known for his role on Hawaii Five O, and so that that's kind of where he got brought in to be, um, you know. He's he, he was very much that Hawaii five o cool headed American. So that CIA character that this is just me going off of what I know from the Daniel Craig films. He's not supposed to be the CIA agent in those films, right? The black guy, yeah. Right. Oh, that is supposed to be the that same guy. Felix, oh, okay. There you go. Felix Leiter. He has a a bigger role in um in the books as kind of like in the books he's he's kind of portrayed as James Bond's sidekick. Yeah from the CIA, uh, and he does occur, he is a regularly recurring character throughout the film series. The problem is, in almost every film, he's portrayed by a different actor. Oh, okay. So because of that, he isn't really as remembered as some of the other recurring characters that were more steadily cast, like M and Q and Moneypenny. Let's see, any, any other last minute discussions about Dr. No? Why is he called Dr. No? Uh, that's just the name of the villain. Not the, Damn the, it. His, yeah, 
It's not even. It's not even like a pseudonym or anything. The uh, the villain's full name is Doctor Julius No. Okay. No. Doctor Number One. Doctor. Doctor nah. No. Doctor No Hands. <laughs> Doctor No Hands. <laughs> Doctor Claw. No, that's a completely different franchise. I'll get you next time, Bond. Next time. With my crabs. <laughs> I've tried spiders. I've tried crabs. What will it take to kill you? Have you tried a gun? Don't be ridiculous. Yeah, I liked it quite a bit. It was like a real. I think I think like it's a really good start yeah. uh, into this entire series. Yep. So I was pleasantly surprised by it. I actually liked it quite a lot. It still ranks as one of my favorites in the series. I respect it for what it is, and as as you pointed out, essentially a pilot. Mm-hmm. For the for the franchise, I think it's very effective. Yeah. yeah. One last thing. What was the character in the red shirt's name again? The what? The the Jamaican guy in the red shirt. Oh, Quora. Uh, yeah. Um, I thought like when they were uh, when they were strafing the uh, where they were when they were hiding when they first got on Crab Bay. <laughs> mm-hmm. When they were strafing it with machine gun fire, I was like, oh shit, this is when they're gonna kill Coral because he's gonna yeah. give up. But they didn't. And I was like, oh okay. Oh, they're not gonna kill the black. Oh, they killed the black. <laughs> <laughs> And yet, there was one crab just kind of scared. Yeah, there was one crab. There was that one crab. But that, that was the healthy one. Yeah, that 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 was filmed on location on Jamaica, so oh, okay. they they could they couldn't shuttle it in. They could they couldn't hijack it and use it in their film. They should have just brought it back with us and checked the bags. <laughs> it's not that far from Jamaica that to a London, right? Right here, guys. I mean, in the right same territory. Here. Yeah. They're, um, Hey, boss, the TSA is not invented yet, but uh, this person has a bag with, like, 50 crabs in it. Universal Your Explorer. Your point. <laughs> do we allow that on Pan American Airlines? Well, we do now. <laughs> Underneath the mango tree, me honey and me, come watch for the moon. Underneath the mango tree, me honey and me make bululoop soon. Underneath the moonlit sky, me honey and I come sit hand in hand. Segwing in to Godzilla, I do want to share the main reason why I am so excited uh, about this project. I am a slight history buff, uh, especially surrounding uh, the Cold War, thanks entirely to Bond. Um, You know, you would think at first that James Bond and Godzilla don't have too much in common, but I heavily disagree. They share a common parent, and that is the nuclear bomb, the nuclear age, the entering into the Cold War following World War II. Both James Bond, which was originally um, created in the 50s in novel form, and Godzilla were both hatched from the same egg. What you are seeing with both of these films is the immediate ramification of this very important event in history, but from two completely different perspectives. The one that won the war and the one that lost. You know, the whole thing with Godzilla is that it is an allegory for the hydrogen bomb and the nuclear age, the ramifications of the literal hell that was dropped upon these people. So it makes sense that you personify that as this 
unstoppable, terrorizing monster that looms over the heads of all. Whereas in James Bond, he himself finds himself fighting a very different enemy, and that is the enemy of politics, the actual Cold War, the war of spies that use espionage and information as weapons. And as you'll see as the series go forward, it will dive more into the, the state of affairs in the world as the Cold War goes on. Not too long after Dr. No came out, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, yeah. which is, you know, the pinnacle of tension during the Cold War. And you'll, you'll see how that plays out from film to film, how the changing of the times greatly impacts James Bond's own little world within the Cold War. I'm interested to see how that plays out in Godzilla as well. I want to see how Japan's evolving idea surrounding the concepts that originally gave birth to Godzilla. I want to see how those evolve, how those play out, how the times affect that film franchise as it marches continuously with this franchise that I already know. Yeah, and I'm glad that you're looking forward to seeing the evolution of that because I picked these two series for a reason, but I completely forgot about the fact that James Bond deals with subterfuge and Cold War politics and that situation. So with Godzilla, yes, it does originate from those metaphors and those fears from Japan. Um, but the funny thing is, is that as the series continues on for quite a while, it becomes less about that and more about Godzilla being heroic. But there are so many more monsters that he combats that they are all based around some kind of either nuclear radiation or just experimentation in general. So as we continue on for the next like 10 or so films, you will see a more lighthearted feeling compared to this first one, mm -hmm. but they all do play with the idea of we're messing with things that we shouldn't. And here's the aftermath of it. <laughs> That's why I would really love as, I, as much as I can, I would really love to fast forward to Godzilla 1985 because that film specifically deals with cold war tensions during mm -hmm. that time period. And like 1954 is a, metaphor for the Hiroshima bombings in 1985 is smack dab during the Cold War and directly references that. So it's like, it's exactly why every 30 years I want a Godzilla film to reflect the nuclear fears of the time. And unfortunately, I don't think 2014 did that with the newest iteration. But um, yeah, 1985, I think does a great job with that. Nearly had a rant right there. Well, I already did a, an entire rant and look closer, Godzilla. You can find it on Cruz Moore's channel, but yeah. Anyway. Because yeah, the two film franchises, they do definitely, you know, one is very much a man versus man style conflict, while the other one is more akin to a larger man than life. Nature. Yeah. We are watching both of these film series on the big screen in a movie theater, which is just adding to just the overall enjoyment and seeing the oh. way, seeing these films the way they should be seen. I've seen each of these films, especially the older ones, maybe 30 to 40 times in my entire life. This will be the first time I'm watching this series in a movie theater. Yeah, that's tight. And that is tight aside, as hell. Aside from the newer aside ones. Aside from newer ones, yeah. you know, I saw in the movies when they came out. But these older ones, you know, I've never had a 
freaking movie theater that I could just go and pop these films into. So uh-huh. being able to watch these films for the first time <laughs> that I love to death and have fucking memorized. Like it would be a lot easier to like watch these and record all this in someone's home, but any attempt to have Godzilla films about giant monsters on a giant screen to oh, me yeah. is just the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, as, as soon as you hear Godzilla's roar through these speakers, yeah, I'm, so I'm like a, so cool. a little kid yeah. again. <laughs> yeah, I started watching Godzilla on a, a six-inch TV screen from a black-and-white VHS tape. So going from that to a Criterion Collection Blu-ray on the big screen, it just brings everything to life from my childhood. Is this the first time that you that, that, you, that you saw it on, on the big screen? This will be my... Th- Second. <laughs> second, <laughs> second time watching this on the big screen. I first, I was lucky enough to see this on the big screen uh, in Hollywood when Gareth Edwards was doing his press tour right, for 2014. Right, I remember that. Yeah. The irony of that is like, you have this guy that made a lackluster Godzilla film introducing this classic and it's like, you meant well, man, but... Huh. <laughs> well, I mean, it's hard to know, like, without actually asking him, like, where his hands were tied, like, when it came to, like, what to do with the movie. Well, I mean, I asked him, and everyone gave... He did interviews for what he wanted to make, and he made exactly what he wanted to make. What if that's just what the studios wanted him to say? No, I don't think so, because he was completely, like, full of passion on what he wanted to do, and the, and the studio gave it to him for that reason. And he just... Anyway, enough about 2014 disappointing me. <laughs> I expect no less than every single episode just have a, a 2014 rant in it somewhere. <laughs> Why did it hurt so bad? Every single episode, you're going to bring up 2014. I'm going to bring up Quantum of Solace. Yep. Despite our better judgment. I really should have brought my chocolate. I'm, I'm upset now. Here, you can have this one. Yay. I have enough fucking sweets at home. That one Kit Kat was enough. I got French fries. Where'd they go? It's right under your chair. It's directly under the dead center of your chair. When was the last time this place was vacuumed, Cruz? When did the quarantine start? <laughs> it's got that nice theater flavor to it. Mmm, butter well, popcorn some, flavored some butter chocolate. Some soda that spilled up the aisle, so it's got a little bit of that flavor in it, too. We begin our kaiju journey with the iconic Japanese film that started it all, Gojira, from 1954. The story follows a mysterious series of fishing boat disappearances and evidence of nuclear radiation on Odo Island, where it is discovered that Godzilla, an ancient dinosaur-like monster, has been awoken by nuclear testing in the Pacific Ocean. After watching the American sci-fi film The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and with the news breaking of a Japanese fishing boat whose crew became contaminated by the testing of the hydrogen bomb in March of 1954, Toho producer Tomoyuki Tanaka was inspired to make Japan's first giant monster movie, featuring a monster that would not only be a result of nuclear weapons testing, but would embody the horrors of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings that occurred just nine years prior. The film would go on to be the most commercially successful and critically praised cinematic allegory for Japan's tragedy, both for the time and in perpetuity. 
Just as well, the prominent figures who made the film come to life had all experienced the effects of war first and secondhand. It was directed and co-written by Ishiro Honda, who was a POW for nearly a year and had barely survived the firebombings in Japan. It was executive produced by Iwao Mori, who was a key player in Toho's success and was once regarded as a war criminal for producing propaganda films. Co-directed by special effects genius Eiji Tsuburaya, who was also labeled as a former war criminal for his tremendous work on the special effects of Toho's war films. And finally, scored by composer Akira Ifakube, the man responsible for the everlasting Godzilla theme and the iconic roar of the monster. Ifakube himself went through the trauma of losing his brother to radiation poisoning, witnessed the atomic fires of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and as he lay in a hospital bed suffering from radiation poisoning, he heard one of his own compositions play on the radio as Japan announced their surrender. It's this kind of rare and experienced creative collaboration that gives birth to iconicity. A film that continues to stand the test of time, so long as humanity continues to self-destruct. So on that note, Jake, I've already shown Godzilla to Chaz and Willie back in 2014, so as someone who just watched it for the first time, what are your thoughts? I loved it. Great. <laughs> Bar none, I loved it. I'm no stranger to black and white. I am no stranger to um, foreign language films. Those kinds of approaches from the old style, they, they don't really bother me. I, I, I'm very good at seeing past that stuff. If anything, I admire it more. Because, I, I, you know, I was saying, like, I could see the, uh, the filming effects that they were using, which for the time were absolutely incredible. You know, even when I could see the technique that they were using, the fact that they were using those techniques, at the degree that they were using it, all, all I could do was applaud it. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember um, the scene where they had the, you know, when, when, uh, when one of the early boats were getting attacked, and you can see the uh, ocean start to bubble as the unseen Godzilla rises. And even though I can see that, you know, the bubbling effect is being overlaid over the over that the still ocean, even though I, I can see that overlay, I still can help but think like, man, that is effective. And that, that shot itself that you bring up of just the, the flash of light coming up from the ocean and mm -hmm. hitting the sailors, like that to me is still like one of my favorite shots in cinema history because it's a flash of light hitting Japanese crewmen on a boat, which is a direct reference to the lucky dragon that was affected by nuclear fallout. There's anything that this movie does incredibly well, you know, it's, it's, it's comparable to Dr. No, is how well it builds tension. I think they waited the, till the perfect opportunity to actually show Godzilla himself. You know, it's, it's, it's the old technique that people always bring up in any monster movie, don't show the monster. Only show bits and pieces of the monster. The longer you can wait to show the monster in full, the more effective it'll be. And I think, I think Godzilla hit that perfectly. That shot of actually seeing Godzilla for the first time rising over that mountain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially at that time, you weren't seeing uh, anything that's in stop motion, which was the preferred method of doing it for monster movies. Mm -hmm. Um, they went with puppeteering and suitmation, which actually having a guy in a suit. Um, but with the way that they shot it and having it look that iconic and actually being on a mountain 
full of people to sell it um, makes it that much more powerful. So to me, it's like seeing it as an adult, that shot is still really effective to me. Because the number one thing with Godzilla that you have to sell and you only have one chance to sell it is scale. How big this thing is. Mm -hmm. And if they had, you know, his first appearance, like let's say his first appearance was the guy in the rubber suit just rising out of the water, that wouldn't give you a sense of scale. But actually seeing Godzilla towering over the mountain, which they actually took a few uh, moments of film to show characters climbing that mountain in order to kind of put into your head how big the mountain is. And then you see Godzilla over that mountain and you see the people uh, imposed on uh, standing on the trail towards the bottom of the shot. It tells you right there how big this thing is. You say that they only have one shot to get it right. They literally basically only had one shot to get it right because with that many people on a mountain and having no walkie-talkies at the time, they had a guy at the top of the mountain giving the cue at the guy at the bottom of the mountain, like, we're good to go, start filming. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and plus there's that scene, like, immediately after, like, after Godzilla leaves that first scene, where, like, there's the shot down at where he was standing, and you could see his foot, not only his footprints, but you could see the trail that his tail leaves. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, it's almost like they dragged, like, they dragged a whale. Of course, they they drew the effect, but it it looks like they would have dragged a whale had they done it practically. And even though you don't see him, you can still hear his footsteps going the whole time so willie how do you feel about revisiting it for a second time i feel like if i were to criticize anything about it it would be at times i feel like it jumps around too much and and i found myself getting confused about a couple things that was also combined with trying to remember if i had seen this once before already so i can't really say it it wasn't until like the oxygen destroyer was was brought up that i was like okay i remember this shit I remember this. Yeah, it's hard to forget a literal oxygen destroyer, which I love so much. It's still one of my favorite, like, fictional weapons in a film series. And I I love... Yeah, I, lo- I love the, the character of Dr. Sivazawa. He was he was definitely the standout best character in the film. Because, like, he's like, I'm looking at this, like... He in a James Bond film. He exactly, exactly. Not just he, the eye patch, but he has you know developed this weapon that, let's be fair, could destroy the world in the wrong hands. He would be the he would be you know the mad scientist that that's ah given to my demands or I will use the oxygen destroyer. But no, as I was like, no, this I have created something oh, that should not exist. Mm-hmm. And just his his resolve, and I knew like you know when he was you know burning the documents, and he was saying the thing of like okay this. It's going to be used once and only once. It can never be used again. No one can know how to make it. And like, you know, from there on, you, you can't, you're like, I know this is, I know this isn't going to end. Yeah. Sarah's so always going to make yeah. it out of this. He's going to make sure that there's no way it can be recreated. Yeah. Which for Japan was a really strong first because they're really not used to seeing one of the main characters of a film commit suicide, basically, mm-hmm. in order to save the day. So it was... Definitely something vastly different for the time. I mean, Personally, I, I wish he got more screen time than he did. Yeah. Same. Because, <laughs> like, you see you see a glimpse of him, you know, with that beautiful eye patch, you mm-hmm. know, towards the beginning shot when everyone is waving off, the, the character's off on the boat, and he's just kind of yeah, just standing just there. Yeah, there. He looks like, and then oh. you don't, And you don't see him again until the third act. Yeah. He's just, like, pre-jaded already. They, they keep talking about him, but you don't actually see him again until the third act. Okay, so if we were to say... The top five characters who have ever worn an eye patch: 
Dr. Sarazawa. Dr. Sarazawa. Snake Plissken, <laughs> Big Boss, and who are we missing? Future Twilight. Future Twilight, <laughs> who is also see, kind of a reference I, I had to. to Snake Plissken. No, uh, I had a sneaking suspicion this was the case, but I'm glad to now know for sure that James Bond didn't invent the uh, Mad Doctor and iPad stereotype. <laughs> James Bond has invented a lot of stereotypes. I'm glad that that wasn't one of them. <laughs> yeah, originally Serizawa, because he is a victim of the war, he was supposed to have a more mangled, deformed face, and you can actually see it on the original poster for Godzilla. But because uh, the actor playing him was considered like one of the pretty boys of Japanese Hollywood, yeah, it's like we can't mess him up that much. So they they couldn't fan him of the opera him. Yeah, I love Sarah's awesome. <laughs> I also like the uh, the the main um, uh, zoologist guy, uh, the, the one who you know wanted to save Godzilla essentially oh, yeah. and you know yeah. keep him alive and it's a shame that, that you know I, I kind of figured that he would kind of do more mm-hmm. he kind of j- spent the majority of his screen time just kind of like moping around and saying <laughs> this sucks but he does it incredibly well he does it incredibly well he sells the emotion and the reason so why is because at that time he was literally considered the greatest actor in the world because huh. I think I can see why Either the New York Times or some other uh, media outlet classified him as that because he starred in uh, Akira Kurosawa's Ikiru, mm-hmm. which is one of the most like depressing films you could watch. But he plays a businessman who learns that he has cancer and tries to make his life worth something. And you watch both Dr. Yamani in this film and his character in that film, and you're like, oh, he's really good at selling depression Sad- and sadness. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, he, he, he sells that really good. You can see that emotion in his eye of like, oh. Or even just that like silhouette of him sitting in his room in the dark. Yeah. Just with his head down. Yeah, to turn, turn the light off. Please. Yeah. Yeah, this movie makes very good use of uh, stoic acting. So the actor who plays Ogata, the mm-hmm. male love interest, right. they were trying to decide between Akira Takarada, who played Ogata, they were trying to decide, should he play Serizawa? Or should he play Ogata? Because both of them were good-looking actors. I say they got it right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ogata, honestly, is probably the m- most forgettable character in the movie, I'd say. like. Well, they don't really give him that much to do. No, he's just there. Yeah. He's, he's just there to be the love interest, which is really weird because... Honey Rider. Yeah, no, like, how dare you, sir? Not that bad. Not nearly that bad. But but no. but in that vein, you know, it's interesting to see that, you know, the female love interest is Bond. very proactive in the story. She she kind of drives the story. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. I would if I would if I were to say who's the main character, I would say she is. Just just recut this movie so it's it, it like serves always the yeah. Bond villain, and it's like now I will demonstrate the power of my oxygen destroyer right. when he shows her what it does. Yeah, where's where's the main the male? Uh, he's just there to look pretty and like you know and ask for her father's hand in marriage or yeah. per- yeah. permission. And, and fail like, miserably. And like, I'm gonna ask. It's like, how how is this subverting Disney before Disney? <laughs> I'm gonna ask. You, I'm gonna ask your your father's permission for 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 how I had a yeah, marriage. Yeah, that, that scene came up. It's like I'm gonna I'm gonna ask your father's hand for marriage. Like, is that really the time? I was thinking that yeah. too. Like, and then he fucks that up by like yeah. by like saying, I think I think Godzilla should be destroyed yeah, after. Wasn't he in the military? 
He was yeah. Coast Guard. Yeah, so he's he he kind of is depicted as kind of like kind of a lug. The great thing about him is that that actor, well, both him and the actor that plays Sarazawa do come back in later Godzilla films as different characters. Oh, okay, interesting. So despite having like you know a semi-important role in the first film, Akira Takarada has gone on to be like one of the most widely popular actors in the series. And I was also very lucky to meet him at Godzilla Fest 2019 as well. Really? That's very cool. cool. So this is where I bring up some photos I have of when I met him. Chaz, where are you going? (laughs) I thought I was going to sneeze. Okay. It was like hanging out with like a really friendly grandfather who was just really humble and happy to meet so many people that loved his work. Were you the youngest person there minus like some people bringing their kids? Yeah, there were tons of kids there. Yeah, tons of kids like dressed up in their own kaiju outfits, and it was incredible. Oh, yeah. What, what, yeah. What, was there anyone more around your age? Oh yeah, there were tons of people in their twenties and stuff. Like the Godzilla fandom is just all over the board, and I felt very much at home. Oh, then better. this is the daughter of um, Haru Nakajima, who was the Godzilla suit actor. Okay. Nice. Um, oh, cool. She was a lot of fun to meet, and had a lot of great stories to tell about her dad. And there's the oxygen destroyer. Oh, that's tight. Oh, yeah, they had a yeah. model replica of it. There oh, it's a replica? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, any idea what happened to the original prop? I don't know. I <laughs> <laughs> what I is this trash? It's spray nice Goosebumps shirt. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Good old Goosebumps. Actually, I think there was another uh, fan there that was also wearing a um, Goosebumps shirt uh, sign like that, and we were like, hey, what's up? L- letting my mom toss away my Goosebumps books collection was one of the grand mistakes of my life. Yeah, that was... I still have all mine. That, that, was, that was a major L on my part. That, that should not have... It, it, in hindsight, that was a very big mistake. <laughs> and it's also where I picked up this of a figure. Wow. It's a um, movie-accurate replica of the original Godzilla from the film. Rubber folds and all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's one of my prized possessions, because it's like I wanted something that would be as close to the original suit design as possible, so I was so... So, so, so happy to find it there. Great suit design. Well, you, you see, you talked about how they chose to go with uh, suit motion as opposed to uh, standard claymation and makes a world of difference, you know. Yeah, not only, like, does it give him more emotion, but it also, like, like people might mock the way that, the, that Godzilla is moving, but that makes him feel more out of this world. And, and monstrous. It has it has a it has a fluidity to it that you wouldn't be able to match with stop motion. You wouldn't be able to film that in quite the same way of him uh, toppling over that bridge or of him uh, picking up that train. Having uh, Godzilla move with the same fluid frames as everyone and everything else. Like moving organically. It's mm-hmm. much more organic. And plus, like, with a suit, you you just get way more detail that you would, would be so much harder to get on a clay model and maintain on a clay model more importantly. Especially with the way his skin is designed. Like, not only is that the material that they use, but they wanted him to look like a burn victim from radiation. I know, and it might, it might just be me because, like, you know, the way it's filmed and the way the creature is designed, I notice a lot of times unless they put specific focus and attention to it, a lot of times you couldn't see his eyes. Like his eyes kind of blend into the, the, the texture of the rest of the suit. And a lot of times I, was found, I found that very effective because yeah. unable to see the eyes, you actually you know, lose that window into the soul and it made 
you know, especially when he was rampaging about, like you said, it, it just made him seem that more alien and otherworldly. Because it looks like they're rolling back into his head. Yeah. He's usually just this great, almost formless blob of pure darkness mm-hmm. against this, um, you know, matte gray backdrop sky. Like, I think one of the strongest shots of, like, and one of the ones that you find everywhere you go when it comes to, like, iconic Godzilla shots is, and one of the reasons why this film is incredible in black and white, is him hitting the power lines and all the electricity going off, and he's just this, like, outline, this silhouette Mm. of this giant thing. In a lot of ways, you can get away with a lot more in black and white. Mm -hmm. Because black and white is very good at hiding imperfections. And because it's so good at hiding imperfections, you can get away with something that, if you had filmed this in color, it would look horrible, but because it's in black and white, your mind fills in the details that aren't there. Like a lot of like a lot of the scale like miniatures they used would it, like they would have been a lot harder to pass off as more real looking, if if you could see all the color and all the different imperfections and like yeah. maybe how badly the paint job was applied or whatnot. It also depends on like what the content of the film actually is because when you're working with a story that requires a replica of Tokyo to be lit aflame at night, then you have a lot of great light and dark to work with. One of my favorite scenes is, is when he's going on the rampage and he's heading towards the TV tower. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the guy's r- r- reporting on... Oh, I love that. And, and he's I'm like going to take a second to applaud this character. Just give me a sec. The, the guy in the radio okay, tower. Okay, I'm done. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. This, this is it. We're going to die. Yeah. Goodbye, yes. everyone. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. That was so good. Like... It, it it reminded me of that conversation that we were having a while back, where the way that that that, that you'd want to die, and and someone and someone and you guys mentioned seeing Godzilla and and like about to just atomic ray blast you away, and it's like just accepting the fact that there's nothing you can do, right. and that's what that guy did. Yeah. Well, and, and and he did and he did so maintaining his TV personality. Yeah, he, he, he he reported to the last breath. Well, yeah. kind, of, kind of contrary to the you can't do anything about it kind of thing. Like, I like how like near the beginning, the the sci- the main like the scientist who wants to see Godzilla live and study him is basically like, don't do whatever you do, do not flashlights at him. That'll just yeah. piss him off. Yeah. And throughout the movie, it's just it's just an epileptic nightmare. Even on, even on the radio <laughs> tower, they're like flashing I lights know. at him. It's so fucking And one of the great things that I love about that is that it's also another iconic shot from two different perspectives. One is this incredibly sweaty Japanese man speaking into a microphone that he's about to die. And then you cut to his perspective, which is Godzilla roaring, but because of the lighting, you barely see his head and it almost looks like a mushroom cloud. So it just, it sells it so freaking well. And I love that scene so much. And, and then like the, the next shot of, is the camera just going towards the ground. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like I saw that. I'm just like, that is a way that terrifies me. I would hate to fall. To my death, like, like, because there is nothing I can do about it, but just, but fall and wait and, for the landing and wait for the landing that that will never come. Really, I choose melting. That one looks cool. I choose <laughs> melting, and then Godzilla bites the tower, and you fall anyway. Aww. Oh fuck! There is a film in the series where someone is just like staring face to face with Godzilla, and just nuclear breath wipes them out. 
I'm not going to say which one, but man, we have a long way to fucking go. like morbidly curious but very 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 skeptical that it'll be anything remotely good the live action your name that people are that, oh who gives a shit like like <laughs> that, that, that people are trying to make i'm like i'm somewhat curious if you'll do it good you can, but i'm really just... not going to watch it in theater unless i hear good reviews about it you could say the same thing about like, oh, they want to do a live action Akira, they want to do a live action Perfect Blue, and it's like, you guys are, what? what? Why? Like, a, it's most likely never going to happen. B, it's completely unnecessary. And 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 C. Hence, Death Note. You're gonna look. You <laughs> the audience that you're gonna try and sell it to won't see it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and if they like, do see it, they'll see it, it just to complain about audience it. That, that that acceptable to everyone. <laughs> no one's gonna give a fuck. Yeah. Seriously, what about Con- live action Death Note? William Defoe was great casting. Yes, yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> that's Defoe the one. Was, that's the one William contrary. Defoe was a fantastic like, Ryuk. Man, fucking Death Note, but William Defoe, man, he was great. He was great. <laughs> <laughs> he was a great Ryuk. Yeah, it, it's like um. I fuck, think that's what, on his resume. What, what's the guy's name in, in Spy Kids Two? The the scientist. Steve Buscemi. Is that no? Steve Buscemi, in Spy Kids Two. The one who who who's, who drops the line of uh, yeah. Does God is God afraid of his own creation? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that was Steve Buscemi. Yeah. That was Steve Buscemi. God, yeah. that fucking hair. I was thinking it was someone else. I, I thought it was the guy who plays... Um... Wait, you mean the guy that you worked with in the studio, Willie? No, no, I don't think that was Steve Buscemi. Oh, okay, never mind. Then. No, no, I worked with Steve Buscemi in the studio. Yeah, you did, and you don't know what movies he's in, like Spy Kids 2, Island of Lost Dreams. <laughs> I don't think that's Steve Buscemi. In Spy Kids too. Like, like, like the image that I have in my head is is a very different face. I think we, I think we've entered free talk time in the podcast. Wars. Like I, I know another movie, another. It is Steve Buscemi. That is Steve Buscemi. Yes! Jesus Christ! No, he looked up Steve Buscemi and someone else's face come up. No, uh, I'm I, okay. You know who Steve Buscemi is. I, I do know. I, I'm, I'm remembering a different face, and, and I'm thinking. Oh, then your brain is wrong. I'm saying that that image also looks like another actor based on the hair. Well, he's not. Drinking too much, all that milk's going to your head, Willie. It's Willy. this man who is in a giant frame in Pat Boyvin's house. <laughs> So anyway, Godzilla was great. God, I'm going to have to try to find out who the, who the actor is that I'm thinking of that, that, that looks well, like. Tune in next week when Willie figures <laughs> out who the fuck he's thinking about. <laughs> on Media Detectives. Chaz, would you say that one of your first introductions to Godzilla was Snake Eater? Because of Paramedic and her discussions about oh, cinema yeah, history. Yeah, she had one for Godzilla. Yeah. I mean, that would be nice, but it was, it was definitely, I definitely, uh, I definitely watched all of James Wolfe's, like, oh, okay. Godzilla retrospective before that, and just, like, kind of getting into the different eras, like, uh, the, uh, that one with the giant goo monster and his different perspectives on the, on all the different movies. It actually made me really giddy because I played Snake Eater in 2004, which was when they were celebrating Godzilla's 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but it made me really giddy because at that time I was getting back into Godzilla. Um, Godzilla Final Wars came out, which was the last Godzilla film for the next 10 years that would come after. So as soon as paramedics started talking about Godzilla, I was like, ah, you're appealing to me. She also had a, a James Bond yeah. quip, which, which isn't as impressive because Snake Eater is a giant James Bond homage anyway. Yeah. But she did, she did have one Kodak call where she calls out from Russia with love. So to cut to one of the segments that I'll be keeping in mind for the Godzilla series is the amount of alternate titles for every single film. So for the first Godzilla film, since it was the first of its kind, the only titles that we have for it are three, which would be Gojira, Godzilla, and the 1956 Americanized version that was re-edited for American audiences. God bless America. <laughs> <laughs> entitled of we did. Godzilla King of the Monsters, not to be confused with 2019's Godzilla colon King of the Monsters. Of course. <laughs> So we have a low alternate title count of three for the first film, which will soon change as the series continues and gets different titles from many different countries. So who would win in a fight, Dr. No or Dr. Sarazawa? Are they both willing to fight to the death? Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Dr. Sarazawa is too good of a boy. Too <laughs> would, would the oxygen destroyer fuck up uh, Dr. Nose's hands? Yeah, no, I mean, if, if Dr. Sarazawa... That's what I was thinking. If Dr. Sarazawa is allowed to use the oxygen destroyer, then I think he automatically wins. And there you go. There's our answer, yeah, folks. Dr. Sarazawa <laughs> wins due to the but, fact that he can literally liquefy but, oxygen. But he also yeah. dies, so... But it's a technical victory. So Sarazawa's like, here, hold this. There are, <laughs> there are definitely other Bond villains who would hold a uh, better chance in a mad scientist off mm -hmm. against Sarazawa. Also, I love the fact that, the, like, I didn't think that we would find many connections between these films as we go on, but both of these films deal with nuclear radiation. Yep. And both of the films feature Geiger counters. Yeah, they did. And both <laughs> of the films cost a million dollars to and make. Like, and, like, very similar kind of looking Geiger counters as far as props are concerned. Yeah, yeah I noticed that. <laughs> as soon as I saw the Geiger counter in, the, in James Bond, I was like, <gasps> That's the same for the Geiger counter. <laughs> also, I was mistaken, Willie. I thought... Godzilla was made for a million dollars. Turns out it was made for two hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars. So, very so even less. Yeah. So oh, fifth of the budget. Fun, yeah. fun, uh, fun fact. I looked up the fifty dollars in Miami thing for nineteen sixty-two versus uh -huh. today. Uh -huh. It was over like four hundred dollars. Oh, okay. Yeah, I knew it, I knew it was gonna be a lot of money. <laughs> like, like it's fifty dollars in Miami. That's four hundred fucking wow. dollars for a seashell. But at the time, next to Seven Samurai, uh, next to Seven Samurai, it was the most expensive Japanese film ever made. I can say that for what it was. That's. Well, I mean, they invested in a good fursuit and good, uh, <laughs> good, good, good models. I said fucking you fursuit. Fursuit. <laughs> we Why haven't gotten. Again, we haven't gotten a King Kong yet, Chaz. There are no fursuits. <laughs> Why, why couldn't a stage light have just fallen on me right now? <laughs> well, you can just sit under the disco ball next time. I need to go reposition. Like, I'm taking my mic with me. It's not your mic. <laughs> well, I'm taking the mic I'm using. That suit must have gotten so hot with how much fire they used for the effects. Yeah, Haru Nakajima had to go through, like, he lost a ton of weight. They had to remove, like, an entire cup of sweat every time he got out of the suit. <laughs> it was incredibly daunting, and he stuck with the character for like 10 to 15 more films. Holy shit. He did an incredible job. That's really amazing. So ultimately, final question, would we recommend Dr. No and Godzilla to a first-time viewer? For Dr. No, I would say yes. There are some series in which I think, you know, maybe the first uh, 
I uh, the first entry in a series is often a lot of uh, very different than what it becomes. It has that first entry weirdness, and Doctor No definitely has that. Doctor No is not like the other Bond films, mm-hmm. but it's very much not a bad thing. It's for for what it is, it does it extremely well, and it paved the way to what stood the test of time as like the longest running and most successful movie franchise of all time that you know eventually got beaten out but it held the crown for a long time and dr no is a big reason for that so i definitely uh, would recommend it as a first one uh for godzilla if you like really awesome uh cinematography techniques if you enjoy uh if you have absolutely zero qualms about black and white, about uh, four, uh, subtitles over a foreign language. If that's not a deal breaker for you, it is an amazing movie. I'm, I, I agree w- w- with him on that, but I also want to add an addendum to the Dr. No. It, it depends on, uh, for a first time viewing, I recommend it, but it also depends on what the person is wanting out of their first time viewing it. Are they wanting a action-packed movie or are they wanting something suspenseful? If they're wanting an action-packed movie, Dr. No may not be the best one to to start them on, uh, which which is kind of what, what we did. You started me with something that was like one of your personal favorites that mm-hmm. was just like really good and 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 had like the nice blend of everything because uh, it is definitely vastly different from the other movies. Not Maybe not vastly, but, but it is definitely different from the... Your first idea when you when you imagine Bond. Yeah, uh, uh, Doctor No is definitely very recognizable as a Bond film, and uh, you can see it's it's interesting to see how humble the first movie is. It's a very good. It's like a very relaxed version of like kind of a James Bond film almost, and it's it's you you get a little bit of you get a little bit of everything without it being too extreme or having to feel like it's one upping a previous movie or anything like that. It feels it feels very secure in how it, everything plays out, and I think I think that helps like cement like how this Bond character should kind of play out to the audience. Godzilla is a is of course a great movie. It's just that I imagine that the pacing is maybe a bit slow for a lot of people. The it, it you do see Godzilla uh, like have like a full on rampage sooner than I kind of felt like it would happen, but I feel like it would definitely be a put off for some people and I, I feel like that's a bit tragic because it, it it is it is definitely worth the wait in the movie because you you get a, you, you, it kind of runs the gamut of like old-timey special effects and as somebody who loved playing with toys and kind of crashing them around and playing with them in the dirt as a kid it was it's always nice seeing uh seeing like the people who make the sets for the movie were just like yeah just go ahead wreck the shit out of it yeah. <laughs> and just like just we'll make sure the- we're filming <laughs> <laughs> we only built three of these <clears throat> and so uh seeing seeing all the effort they put in like making sure like all the shingles on the roofs were separated so that they would all fall and cascade in such a just a just an awesome to watch way like this would have essentially been like watching star wars in the 70s and it would just it would kind of blow your mind seeing this much detail put into a movie for the most part. Uh, naturally, I would absolutely say yes to saying that Godzilla is a great introductory film. Um, it's in my top 10 best Godzilla films of all time. And if you're going to start anywhere, start with the original film. Yes, it is from 1954. And yes, the foreign language and black and white might put you off. But if you want to see the origin 
for an entire film genre and for one of the most culturally significant characters in cinema history then absolutely start with the first film like if i may like when it comes to like you may not yeah, I was gonna say. I was gonna say that. <laughs> you were thinking it too. I just want to say about the whole black and white and foreign film thing. Like to me, that's just a consequence of like you 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 just you don't have the tools necessary to watch this film. So the filmmakers were kind enough to, or people who liked the film, were kind enough to basically interpret it for for you to be able to watch. And when they make a dub or a, a subtitle for it. I don't know. I feel like that just adds to it that you you are peering into another culture, and that it, it does, it does, it does give it. Does, you do benefit from hearing the subtitle translation of the original interpretation, as opposed to like if they localized it and changed the dialogue entirely. Except they did. Did they? <laughs> they did with the uh, 1956 Americanized uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters. Uh, is that and... the one we watched, or no? Okay. No, no, no. You would know if we did. Because King of the Monsters was um, very much a localization. It was them going... It was them recognizing that this film was important, but they were like, okay, we need to have an American actor in this film. So they re-edited scenes with an American actor in them. Oh, they Power Rangers did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, featuring Raymond Burr, um, who plays a news reporter staying in Japan and reporting as Godzilla is attacking Tokyo. The original Gojira technically wasn't available until i think the early 2000s the version we watched like you couldn't actually see it like that i think until the early 2000s really yeah damn and then for dr no like as someone who has only seen the craig films and going into this very slow modest version of it i was really happy getting like a more laid back like i'm just gonna chill on a sunday and just watch dr no I don't know if it would like rub other people the right way because I've heard people be like, "Man, Doctor No is a terrible film," but I think it's far from that. So I would personally, if people want to see where this series came from, I would absolutely show them Doctor No. So Jake, please yeah. give us a quick introduction to what we can expect with the second film. The second film in the series will be From Russia with Love, and that will be the movie in which Cold War politics plays a very major part and is in the forefront of the, uh, of the plot. So I look forward to, uh, to kind of see uh, going further into depth of how um, James Bond was formed by the Cold War politics at the time. And you will pleasantly see uh, that many of the James Bond uh, staples start to be formed in From Russia With Love. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And then, un- unfortunately, I can't be as excited for my next film, the Godzilla series, because, as I mentioned earlier, I consider the second film in the series to be the worst Godzilla film in the franchise, entitled Godzilla Raids Again. Um, as you all saw from the original film, it works perfectly as its own film mm-hmm. and doesn't need a sequel, which is exactly why you'll see why this shouldn't uh, crap which is exactly why you'll be questioning why this second film exists the sequel, yeah. the sequel shouldn't have existed but thanks to it we have a series exactly yeah you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself but become that, a franchise now that you told me this though i think i am looking forward to the next godzilla movie more than i would have otherwise Kinda i same. hope i hope you enjoy it more than i did but We'll get there when we get there. If we do enjoy it more than you expect us to, you'll, you're more than welcome to tell us why we're wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's what we're here for. <laughs> yep. Yep. Next time on this podcast, Cruz wags his finger at us. <laughs> Stay Menacingly. tuned. Menacingly. 
James Bond versus Godzilla will return. <laughs> <laughs> and for this mission, Bond, we have one oxygen destroyer. Very discreet. You can we hide it in your shoe. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to Bond vs. Godzilla. We'll see you next time with a martini in one hand and a rubber suit in the other. Stay tuned and stay watching. Stay watching.